Genesis 23, this is the word of God. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kirith Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am an alien and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. The Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down before the people of the land, the Hittites, and he said to them, If you're willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf, so he will sell me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. Ephron, the Hittite, was sitting among his people, and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of a city. No, my Lord, he said, listen to me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. Again, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in their hearing, listen to me, if you will. I will pay the price of the field. Accept it from me so I can bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, listen to me, my Lord, the land is worth 400 shekels of silver, but what is that between me and you? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms and weighed out for him the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight current among the merchants. So Ephron's field in Machpelah near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field was deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. Afterward, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. And we thank God for his word. An interesting uh, chapter, and uh, Jeff's going to be opening that up for us in just a few moments' time. Okay, Genesis uh, 23. Have your Bible open. We're going to be working our way through that together. Let me pray and ask for God's help. Father, thank you that you're a God who speaks, and we know that we need your help when it comes to your word, and so we pray that your spirit will be at work in our hearts now, helping us to understand what it is you have to say to us as your people this evening here in Rich Hill. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are the preacher this evening, and you've just read Genesis 23 for the first time, and you're thinking to yourself, okay, what, uh, what do we do with this? You know? um, it's one of those passages that you might well be tempted to skip if you were coming up with a sermon series. If you were to go and uh, search online, 
and lots of churches that have been working their way through Genesis who haven't maybe been holding to every chapter, you're pretty sure that Genesis 23 will not feature, okay? It will not feature. And maybe if I had been come up with a preaching plan, I might have been tempted to skip it myself. But actually, I think Genesis 23 has much to say to us, much to say to us this evening. I think tonight we will see timeless truths, timeless truths that we need to hear, timeless truths about life, about death, and about living in a world that is not our home, but also a call to trust in the promises of God. Follow with me through Genesis 23 as we just work our way through uh, this chapter this evening. Verse 1, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kirath Arabah, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and weep for her. We've been following the story of Abraham and Sarah for some time now, haven't we? Um, it, it, it kind of feels like we've been journeying with them through the, the highs and the lows. We've been thinking about some of the promises that have been given to them by God. We've seen the, the birth of Isaac after much anticipation some of the highs. We've, we've thought about some of the really low lows. Think about all the stuff with Hagar. Those were pretty low lows, weren't they? Think about Sarah being passed off as Abraham's sister. That was a low, wasn't it? We get to hear conversations that they have. We get little snippets of behind the scenes to see what life was like for Abraham and Sarah. Maybe, maybe you feel like you've got to know Abraham and Sarah so much so over the last few weeks that you feel like you, you have an insight into the life that actually is greater than maybe lots of the insights you have into any of your neighbors or many of your friends. And so as we've been working our, our way through, you've come to, come to think of Abraham and Sarah as your friend. You've got to know them pretty well. And then we get to Genesis 23, and we read of Sarah's death, and it almost feels like we've lost a friend, doesn't it? It almost feels like we've lost someone that we've come to know and love. You see, Sarah's a really important figure as we consider our Christian heritage. Sarah is the wife of Abraham, father Abraham. He had many sons. The one whom God chose to to call, the father of our faith. And Sarah herself features in Hebrews 11. She is no small player. And I think the fact that we have Genesis 23 in Genesis shows us just how she is a really key and valued part of the story. I wonder, did you know that Sarah's actually the only woman in the Bible whose age is recorded at her, at her death? I'm not supposed to ask ladies their age, but I think if they're dead, it's okay. I think that's fine. It's a, it's a free hit. And not only that, she's actually the first burial that's recorded in the Bible. This is a really significant event. And rightly, it is marked because Sarah is a significant player in the grand narrative of God's big story. But it also tells us something that we need to be reminded of. Sarah is a a big player. Abraham and Sarah are pretty big names in the Bible. And yet here she is, and she has died. We are not too important to die. That's, That's one of the things that we're reminded of as we read through Genesis 23. The death today is a, is a problem. It's a problem that it has always been. Uh, statistically speaking, your chances are not good. Okay, that's, that's what we see. Everyone dies. Now, we live in a, a time in history 
where we have had significant medical advancements. Living today is, is very different than it would have been if you were living 400 years ago. If you were living 400 years ago, life expectancy would have been very different. We're told that average married couples would have nine children, and an average three of those would die before the age of 21. And thankfully, we are not living in those days. But sometimes, sometimes until we come right up close to death, we can, almost, we can almost think that it's not going to happen. We can almost forget that it's coming. I mean, we, we live in a world where we're constantly hearing about new medical advancements. We're constantly watching advertisement after advertisement for anti-aging creams and practices that will make you look much, much younger, which obviously you've all bought into. And we can almost forget that we will die of something. All of us here, that's true, isn't it? We're going to die of something. We're not too important to die. In fact, it's one of the, the marks of our fallen creatureliness, isn't it? We're not the creator, and one day the creator will call us home. He will call us back, and life here as we know it will come to an end. The same was true for Sarah. That's what we see, isn't it? If she'd done well, 127 years, that's pretty good going, isn't it? And if you got to 127 years, we'd probably bring the Presbyterian moderator to visit or something like that, you know? It'd be pretty good, wouldn't it? But after life, after all of these years that were lived, comes death. And death's a, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because even, even after someone makes it to the grand old age of 127, there's still a grieving, isn't there? There's still a grieving. Still unnatural, isn't it? Even if, if, it, if it comes in kind of the, the normal uh, span of what you might expect life to look like. It's not like a child being born, is it? Where everyone is happy and joyful and rejoicing. No, it's, it's not like that at all. When someone we know and someone we love dies, there's deep sadness in our hearts because we know that death is an intruder, isn't it? Death is an intruder into the world in which we live. And that is what it is. It's an intruder. We go back to the early part of Genesis, and we see that Adam and Eve lived in a world where there was no death, no death at all. And it was only after the fall, as a result of sin, that death was brought into the world. Physical death, yes, and also spiritual death. And so we recognize that death is not good. Death is entirely unnatural, and it enrages that longing within us for a world where there is no more death. No more death, that's what we long for, isn't it? And Genesis 23 reminds us all, death is coming. We are not too important to die. And the second thing I want us to see is, grief is right and proper. That's what we see, isn't it? Grief is right and proper. Look at what happens after Sarah dies. Abraham, her husband, went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Here is Abraham, the, the great Abraham, Father Abraham, and he is brought to tears. He's brought to tears. He may have been chosen by God, the father of a great nation, but it did not mean that he was immune from grief and suffering. It did not mean that he was immune from the sadness of losing his spouse. Now, his faith made a difference. Absolutely, we'll see that. His faith made a difference as to how he grieved, but he grieved nonetheless, didn't he? Even after having the joy of a really long marriage together, when the moment comes and she breathes her last, 
The appropriate response is deep grief, isn't it? The tears run down his face as he weeps. Isn't that too what we see with Jesus whenever his friend Lazarus dies? He weeps at the death of his good friend because death is an intruder, isn't it? Death is an intruder into the world that we live in. And death is this positively awful thing because it robs us, doesn't it? It robs us, it takes those whom we love away. And in how God has designed us and how he's made us, when someone we know, loves, uh, know and love dies, it is only fitting that, that we are moved, isn't it? It's only fitting that we are moved in our hearts and we have a deep sense of sadness knowing that we will no longer have them by our side. In Northern Ireland, and maybe especially with the men, there's, there's often this tendency, isn't it, to be, have the stiff upper, upper lip, you know? I'm okay, no emotion. And yet, we don't see that in the Bible, do we? It's not the pattern that we're given. We're not encouraged to do that. In fact, what are we told? we're told to, to weep with those who are weeping and express our emotions, aren't we? This is something that we should do. And not only when it's someone who's close to us, whenever we are with someone else who has lost someone close to them and they are weeping, we're supposed to weep with them, aren't we? But there comes a point whenever Abraham rises from his weeping. We see that in verse 3, don't we? And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of sight. Third thing I want us to see this evening is that Abraham views himself as a sojourner. Now, what does that actually mean? Well, it means that Abraham, although he's been treated really well in this land, and I mean, he has, he has really been treated well, they say to him, you are a prince of God among us. That's how the locals refer to him. So he's treated well, but he's not a resident, is he? This is not home. Something about home, isn't there? Um, before Christmas, we went away for a night, and um, oh, we really, really enjoyed being away for the night. We looked forward to it, you know, the hype for a few months, the build-up. We're going away for a night. This is so exciting. We're going to stay somewhere else, you know, and it was great. We absolutely loved it, but then you come home, you bring the luggage in, and you look at each other, and you go, oh, it's good to be home, isn't it? <laughs> it's good to be home. There's something about home, isn't there? There's something about being home, and it's good to be home, isn't it? And yet, there's something about what Abraham declares that is actually true for us all as Christians, we are sojourners. This side of the new creation, we will never really be home. We're not going to be there. I mean, it's January, and I assume singing Christmas songs from the pulpit is probably banned, but do you know, when I think of um, Christmas, I think of driving home for Christmas, one of my favorite songs, you know, driving home for Christmas. And there you are, you just think, it's going to be amazing, you know, the drive from Rich Hill to Portadown, it's so long, and you just over and over again, you know, I'm driving home for Christmas, and it's going to be incredible when I get home, and I get like everything done, and I just sit down, and it's Christmas, it's going to be incredible. That's what the, uh, the, the song certainly makes you think, isn't it? And yet, no matter how good Christmas is, it never really meets all my expectations. Never really meets what my heart actually longs for. I wonder if you, you know what I mean, you know? You have this, this aching feeling, of course, yes, everyone together at Christmas, all be great at Christmas, driving home for Christmas, and then 
It's just, it still just lacks something, doesn't it? You see, I think, although we're to be content with our lot, and we've been thinking about contentment in women's ministry, and we're about to think about it in men's ministry, there is a sense in which in this life, we will never be fully content. And the reason is, we are not home. We are sojourners. This is a temporary, temporary place that we are. And home is to come. I mean, First Peter reminds us that. He talks to the Christians and he says, Beloved, I, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You see, as Christians, we are supposed to recognize this is not our home. This is not it. Now, of course, we're to, we're to settle, we're to enjoy this life that we've been uh, given, we're to enjoy the good gifts that God gives us, absolutely. But it is not home, it is temporary. But there's an eternal life to come. That's the difference. This life is temporary, but there's an eternal life to come. And so the temporary mindset that we're to have uh, in this life as his people reminds us, reminds us of what is to actually come. This is not home, but home is to come for God's people. And so we're not supposed to live like this is it. I say we're not supposed to live like this is all there is. No, we're not supposed to pin all our hopes on how things are going in this life. That would be a crazy thing to do, wouldn't it? We're not supposed to put all of our hope in a particular relationship. We're not supposed to put all of our hope in, in our family members. We're not supposed to put all our hope in a relationship working out with a guy or a girl or our job or our wealth or our health diagnosis. Now, don't put your hope in all of those things because they're going to let you down. We don't put our hope in our good looks, the anti-aging cream, the car we drive, the interest rates or our returns. No, no, no. As valuable as many of those things are, they are not the ultimate thing because the ultimate thing, we've already been thinking about it in the catechism, the ultimate thing is actually the relationship with our Creator. The ultimate thing is where we will spend eternity. Will we spend it with God and experiencing the blessing of God? Will it be with Him and His new creation, or will it be separated from His presence to bless and rather coming under His wrath? Sometimes life can pass by so quickly that and Things can, things can take our attention, can't they? They can just, from one thing to the next, and before you know it, you've, you've, you've just given no time to consider the big questions of life. You've just been going from one thing to the next, and, and the big questions about God and about the Creator and about how, how one day we're going to stand before Him, that, that, that just hasn't had time to come into your reckoning. And just like the death of Sarah brings to the fore that Abraham is a sojourner. When we come up close with death, it's one of the things that's supposed to remind us of the same thing. This life will one day come to an end. It's like coming to a funeral. You come to a funeral and the coffin comes up to the front and the preacher doesn't have to say anything, does he? Because well, he probably, he probably will say something. I mean, if he doesn't say something, something's gone wrong. But he doesn't have to say anything in one sense because the coffin itself actually preaches. And this is what the coffin says to you. One day that will be you. One day this life, as you know it, will come to an end and you are going to meet your creator. And so I wonder this evening, have you given that thought? Have you given thought to the fact that this life is temporary? That your life, as you know it, is coming to an end one day. We don't know when. But for all of us, we know it's coming. 
and we're going to stand before the Creator and we're going to give accounts. So I wonder, are you ready this evening? Are you ready for that? Are you ready to meet your Creator and give an account for your life? I wonder, is, is it obvious by how you live that you know this is not all there is? Do your neighbors notice that you live in such a way that this life is not all there is? Do your friends see that? Does your bank manager wonder as he looks down and thinks, this person lives differently. They spend their money differently than all the other accounts that I look at. Well, the fourth thing I want us to see is that it makes a difference to know God's promises, doesn't it? The difference God's promises make are huge for Abraham at this time of grief. You see, ever since God called Abraham and made some pretty huge promises, and we've been thinking about them over the last few weeks, we've been watching on, haven't we, at these promises, and we've been watching at how, despite the circumstances, God seems to deliver time and time again, doesn't he? He delivers on his promises. He does what he says he will do. And one of the promises that God has made to, to Abraham and to Sarah was in chapter 13, and it's with regards to the land. Now, God had told him, Abraham, that he would give him and his ancestors the land of Canaan, really key, the land of Canaan. Now, this promise has been made many, many years before, and here we have Abraham, and he's an old man. He's just lost his wife, just lost his wife, and yet, what's in his mind? But the promises of God. The promises of God seem to shape his living. God has promised him the land, and it seems that Abraham has not forgotten and that's why such a huge section of this chapter is given over to the acquisition of the tomb and the field. I mean, just, just look at the chapter with me. Look at the chapter. I mean, the title in, in my Bible, in the ESV, says, Sarah's death and burial. And yet, if you look at chapter 23, so little is actually given to talking about Sarah's death and burial, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's no big obituary about Sarah and her life, talking us through all of her lifetime achievements. No, there's none of that. And the actual burial is, is summed up in one verse, in verse 19. So it's actually, it's so little about that. Verse 19, after this, Abraham buried his wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. That's it. That's all we're really told about her burial. Now, I think that there's some patterns that we see established here that point to patterns of Christian burial. We see that great respect is given to the dead body. We see that great care is taken to see that the body is actually buried, like a seed planted in the ground awaiting the resurrection day. And so we could end up in all sorts of discussions, couldn't we? Burial versus cremation. And as Christians, is there a pattern that we see throughout the Bible? I suppose I, I think there is. I think there is a pattern that we see. And yet, that's not really the thrust of the text, is it? That's not really what I think it's wanting us to think about this evening. But rather, what we're looking at is the, the negotiation between Abraham and the Hittites in order to buy some of the land. That's the big thrust, isn't it? Verse 4, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place. I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord. You're a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of tombs. None of us will withhold from you this tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Here we see that Abraham is held in the highest of regards, isn't he? 
The locals say, you're a prince of God among us. Seems that his neighbors in Hebron, they've noticed something. They've noticed that God is blessing Abraham. And so they say, you're a, you're a prince of God among us. And at first, at first glance, it seems incredibly generous, doesn't it? Abraham, don't even worry about buying a tomb. You just work away. Use whatever you want. You can use whatever you pick. That's fine. But it's not what Abraham's looking for, is it? No, he isn't just looking for someone to say, it's fine, sure, use my tomb for now. That's all right. No, he is looking to acquire it. He wants to buy it. He wants it to be legally his. That's his thing. Let's imagine for a moment that you uh, want to, to build a garage at the side of your house. And in order to make it wide enough for your new car, well, you need two foot from your neighbor. That's what you need. You need two foot from your neighbor in order for your car to fit into the garage. And so you go and you chat to your neighbor, and your, your neighbor is really quite happy. They're very amicable. They say, do you know what? I, I never use that two foot. You just work away. That's completely fine. Don't, let's not worry about legal stuff. Let's not worry about all that solicitor stuff. You just work away. Build the garage. That's grand, okay? Well, that might be all well and good, but, you know, what's to say in a, a few months' time or a few years' time, your, your neighbor changes their mind, and they say, ah, do you know what? No, I do want that we strip. Or let's say they, they sell the house, and the new neighbor who moves in, they look at that little strip, and they say, well, that little strip that's holding up your garage, I was hoping to do something really special with that. I had great landscaping plans. You know, it all gets very messy, doesn't it? And you can see that Abraham, he knows that, doesn't he? And so it might sound nice, but he's not for falling for it. He wants something that is actually his. Abraham wants a plot to bury his wife, and he doesn't just want someone to let him use it. He wants it to be legally their grave. He wants to buy it. He wants to own just a little bit of the land in Canaan. Verse 8, and he said to them, if you're willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of, the, of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying ground. So Abraham has made it really, really clear. He does want to buy the plot of land, okay? He really wants to buy the plot of land. He's actually picked out his choice, okay? He knows what he wants, and it now belongs to a man called Ephron. Verse 10, now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city, no, my Lord, hear me, I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. And it seems, certainly on the face of it, that Ephron is actually willing to just give the land to Abraham. But Abraham is not content to take the gift, is he? Now, we're not told exactly the reason why. Could be for similar reasons that Abraham refused to take the king's gifts back in Genesis 14. You might remember that. Maybe it's something similar. But for whatever reason, Abraham refuses, doesn't he? Verse, verse 12, then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will, hear, if you will hear me and give the price of the field, accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between me and you? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that had 
that had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights currently among the merchants. Now, what we've just witnessed here is an official land transaction, okay? Don't know if that sort of thing excites you. Remember, I studied property investment. This is the sort of thing that gets me going, okay? Official land transaction. That's what we've witnessed in an ancient city. We're told in verse 10 that this is all taking place at the city gate. So that's, um, that's the place where legal transactions takes place, okay? Uh, at this time, it's kind of the, the equivalent to going to the town hall. It's where the elders and the significant players of the city, they gather in order to do their business. Now, as we look at this negotiation, it seems somewhat strange, okay? I used to go to the mart as a boy and bid on cattle, and this goes against all of the kind of training that I got as a little boy, okay? Because, I mean, look at what happens. If you were looking to buy some property, right, you might try to haggle the price down, okay? That's normally what happens, okay? You might, you might not want to show your hand too early. You might say, oh, there's a few graves. I'd be happy with any of them, you know? This seems strange, doesn't it? Because it starts off with the individual offering to give his property to Abraham. And Abraham says, no, I'm not up for that. And then when Ephron finally names his price, he does so in a way that almost sounds like it's nothing at all. He says, he says ah, sure, what's 400 shekels of silver among friends? You know, it's, it's as if it's nothing at all, okay? And actually, 400 shekels of silver, if you look at comparative data in, in the Bible, this was a huge price. This was top dollar. This was like... The creme to the creme. Yeah, Abraham is very happy to pay it, isn't he? He's a wealthy man, and so getting a good deal is not his priority. You see, for Abraham, the important thing is getting legal right and claim to some land in Canaan. That's the key for Abraham. In fact, the chapter tops and tails by reminding us that that is exactly where we are. Look back at verse 2. Look with me. It tells us that Sarah dies. Where does she die? Canaan. Verse 19 tells us Sarah is buried. Where is she buried? Canaan. That is really, really key. Really key. This is not some passage about how to buy and sell real estate. That's, that's not what it's teaching us. It's not like homes under the hammer where we're, we're supposed to try to evaluate and see whether this was a prudent investment. No, this is location, 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 and it's, the location is Canaan the land that God had promised to Abraham and to his ancestors. And so what we've witnessed here is, is almost like Abraham staking his claim to the promise. As if he was saying, God has made a promise and I believe it to be true. And so I'm going to purchase this little bit of land where I and my wife and some of my family after will be buried. And it's a pointer to God's promises even though he wasn't going to get to see it in full fruition in his lifetime, he believed that what God had said was going to come true. You see, Abraham knew that the promise of the land didn't just refer to this little bit of real estate in Canaan, but rather it pointed to something, something much, much greater, a heavenly land, a new creation to come. We read about it in Hebrews 11. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the land. And then it says later on in Hebrews, verse 16, it says, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. You see, for Abraham, 
even in his grief at losing Sarah, he keeps one eye on the promises of God. Even in the, the grief, he reminds himself of the promises of God. He knew that this life is not all there is. He knew that the promises of God were, were much, much bigger than the life here on this earth. He knew that he was looking forward to the city of God that was to come, not just a city he could see here and now, no, a city that was to come. That's what he kept his eyes on. And it seems that he was able to lift his head. He was able to lift his head, and that enabled him not to get stuck in his grief, but to still live in hope, believing the promises of God, trusting in them to be true to the point where it made a difference to how he actually lived on the ground. And so I wonder this evening, if you're a Christian, maybe you're grieving, I wonder, I wonder are you letting the promises of God shape how you grieve? I wonder, are you massaging your heart and mind with the promises of God, the hope that's to come, the promise of Jesus' return where he will make all things right, the reminder that this is not our home and that this life is not the, the life to the full that we will experience when there is no pain and no suffering, no tears. I wonder, does that enable you to rise up like Abraham, to rise up and to seek to live faithfully in the way that God calls all of his people to live, obediently in the way that God calls all of his people to live, and doing so in the power of the Spirit. That's the only way we can do this, isn't it? Only empowered by the Spirit of God living within us and giving us the strength to be able to do it. You see, Genesis 23 it's really not a passage you want to skip over. It's not a passage you want to skip over. No, it's full of timeless truths. Timeless truths about life and death and living, and living in a world that is not our home. And it's also a call to trust in and put our hope in the promises of God. Let's pray and ask God to help us to do that now. Father, we thank you that We thank you that your word doesn't skip over the hard things of life. Father, we're thankful that your word speaks into to death and grieving and weeping. For some of us, that's maybe where we're at this evening, grieving and weeping. But Father, we're thankful that your word also reminds us how to live in that points us to the promises that we know are true, points us to the hope of the new creation to come, a life where there is no pain and suffering and death. And so, Father, I pray for all of us, whether today is the day that we grieve or whether that's tomorrow or someday in the future, Lord, remind us of the hope that's to come, how your promises are sure how we can bank on them completely. And Lord, might it shape our living. And might that be a witness to those around us that they would see that we know this life is not all there is. 
And yet our life is secure because it is in Christ. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.